Good morning. Um, welcome to the fifth grade Sunday school. Afterwards, we're going to play some pool and foosball. <clears throat> it's a delight to be here. I'm Tim Fader. Um, I'm a family medicine doctor. I trained at York um, Hospital Family Medicine Training Program. And with my wife, um, we went to first, we spent five years in, uh, on the Navajo Indian Reservation in, in uh, Arizona, and then 15 years at Kajabi Hospital in Kenya, and the last eight years uh, in Kabul, Afghanistan. We have four children. Um, they're all professionals. They all love the Lord. I have nine grandchildren. Four are adopted. And I say this to you young people who are here thinking about a career in medical missions, that a normal family life is consistent with a career in medical missions. In fact, it's good for the kids. The kids will, my kids will tell you they would have nothing but this life that they had growing up on the mission field. So I encourage you in that regard. <clears throat> um, you can see, can you see the slides okay? Good, okay. The, I want to talk about the last, these last eight years in Afghanistan. And I will, we'll talk about results and we'll talk about process and then about how this experience can be applied to other parts of the world. This is Afghanistan's story, which is similar to many stories in countries around the world. The Russians came in, invaded the country, and occupied for 10 years. They left a communist government in place for the next three years. The Mujahideen, which means freedom fighters, fought a guerrilla war for all of that time and finally pushed the communists out in 1992. Then the militias, which were based on tribe, the Mujahideen militias, fought each other, and the country fell into four years of, of civil war. <clears throat> the Taliban came in, and um, in 1996, at the same time, Osama bin Laden came in, and they, they stopped all the fighting. Um, they gave haven to Osama bin Laden. He planned 9-11 from Afghanistan. And, and that happened. The United States then asked, demanded from Afghanistan that they release Osama bin Laden. They didn't, so the U.S. attacked and evicted the Taliban. And by December 2001, Afghanistan was a failed state. And this concept of failed state, can you hear me okay? Yeah. This concept of failed state is important. This is a state that can no longer perform its basic security and development functions and has no effective control over its territory or its borders. <clears throat> and once that happens, as it happened in Afghanistan, then in the international community gets together and, and begins the process of rebuilding. And this rebuilding process has four pillars. And you can only, you have to do all four, and you have to do it at the same time. You have to have security, you have to have a system of justice. You have to work on the economy and social well-being. This is where we fit in. And you have to have a system of governance, a constitution, elections, civil authority, etc. So they did that. The international community has been working on that for the last 10 years. 
And these are the, this is the good and the bad news in Afghanistan. There, there's progress. There is progress in the country. I myself am hopeful. Uh, on the security side in this last year, 2011, for the first year, there's been a decrease <coughs> in violence. <coughs> on the other hand, attacks and killings persist. There are 7 million children in school now. Under the Taliban, it was less than 1 million. Many of those children are girls. On the, on the negative side, the life expectancy in Afghanistan is still 44 years. Terrible health statistics. On the governance side, they've had four national elections, and these were the first in the history of the country. On the negative side, each time they have those elections, there's increasing fraud and decreasing participation, maybe some skepticism, um, cynicism entering the population. In the, in the end, the result is that Afghanistan still is number seven out of 177 sta states in terms of the ranking of a failed state. Our job was uh, to develop family medicine care and, and training. We worked from 2003 to 2011. This is the provision of primary care, training Afghan doctors in a family medicine program, which is three years long. It's approved by the Afghan government. And the purpose is to train doctors to, um, to be effective and capable of working in a rural district hospital, of being able to handle more than 90% of what comes through those doors. And these are the results. Uh, as my wife and I left uh, in July, uh, there are two training programs there. We have five training sites. Um, there are 20 graduates, and, and this, um, this is important. Fifteen of those graduates have come back to the training sites, and they are doing family medicine and they're also training other residents. So that, there's a sustainability component in the program. We have three full-time U.S. instructors, and we have 25, there are 25 doctors in training. You know, it's, it's not the best yet. You know, there's still problems. There have been many problems over the years with this. It's not, it's not a smooth process, but there are good people on the ground and I'm hopeful not only for Afghanistan, but also for family medicine in Afghanistan, that it will continue to, um, to improve and get better and make an impact on the country. So those are the results. And I'll, I'll, tell, you, um, I, I'll tell you, frankly, I'm concerned about what we read about Penn State. Results and what you do is important. But we as Christians, how you do it is also important. Joe Paterno has been, he's been the coach there since I played football. A long time. He's a legend. But there, there was, but he, there's some problems in how things were done. And we as Christians have to pay attention to that. And so I want to talk a, a little bit now about process. How we do what we do. The, in Afghanistan and in any country, really, that you go into, you have to understand, any Muslim country, you have to understand and try to manage the interface between two worldviews, between the worldview of Afghanistan, made up by its history and culture and tribe and, and its religion, and our worldview. And if you don't manage that interface, you're not going to move along. That's a key part of the process. 
So this is the picture of the Afghan, a picture of the Afghan worldview. This young lady, she's a teenager. She was um, taken, this photo was taken in 1984 in a refugee camp in Pakistan. Her, her parents had been killed by Russian bombs that struck their village in Afghanistan. Um, and she, in a way, she embodies the, the Afghan worldview. Uh, she's frightened. You can see in her eyes she's frightened. And fear is a dominant emotion in Afghanistan. She fears terrorism. She fears marriage. She'll be forced into a marriage that is not of her choice. She may be beaten during her marriage for her life. She fears childbirth. One in seven women in Afghanistan will die from a complication of pregnancy. She fears death. In, in, in Islamic thinking, at the end of life, Allah weighs your good deeds and your bad deeds and decides at that time whether you go to heaven or hell. So she, death is, is fearful in the Afghan eyes. She has a short-term outlook. She has an average, the average education in Afghanistan is the third grade. She, uh, she's, her outlook is limited by, by her poverty. You can tell by her scarf that covers her head that was scorched in a fire, and she can't replace it. That's just an indication of her poverty. <clears throat> she is intensely distrustful of outsiders, especially foreigners, especially this fellow who's taking her picture. And, and we, coming into that, have to overcome that distrust. She lives in an honor and shame society. That's why she has a head covering. She wants to honor. She, she wears that all the time when she's outside to honor her, her family. And if she doesn't do that, she brings dishonor. And dishonor, for instance, brought about by conversion to Christianity, can lead to death. It's a serious issue. The Afghans are prone to revenge, and forgiveness is known, but not practiced so often. Revenge is more common. On the positive side, this is one determined young lady, and the Afghans are determined people. They are resilient, they're tough, they're smart, and they're determined to overcome um, the difficulties that have come their way. So this is the, the Christian worldview that comes in alongside uh, rubbing shoulders with the Afghan. And this is Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. Um, and he captures a lot of what we believe, God's unconditional love, forgiveness, reconciliation, life after death. We don't have to fear death. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go, make disciples. This is our worldview, and we come to Afghanistan or Syria or Iraq or wherever you're going to go and you rub up against the other worldview and you have to manage that in all of your processes. So process one, you've got to get into the country. And this, um, this document published by the head of the World Health Organization in 2008 makes the case, as no other document I've seen, for primary care for every country in the world. This is put out by Dr. Margaret Chan, and it's excellent. It is an excellent argument. This is for every country. And we go in saying, you know, I went into the Ministry of Health and said, we'd like to um, 
develop a primary care program and, and training, and they said, welcome. And that is your ticket into the country. However, we need to be careful to follow some ground rules. This is your welcoming committee in Afghanistan. If you have a block party, these guys might show up, but you won't have a block party. <clears throat> you have to be careful. And when I signed that agreement with the Ministry of Public Health, they said, we welcome you. We want you here. You can help us. We need your help. Don't proselytize. And this is a tough issue for sometimes for Christians, you know, to understand. But it's not a deal breaker. You, there are many things that you can do. You just can't stand on a street corner and pass out Bibles and pass out tracts. You'll be either shot or arrested or sent home. And that, all three of those have happened. It's a serious issue. So we have to, we have to negotiate this and, and, and manage this interface carefully. Otherwise, we can't be in the country. You can't help Afghanistan in Peoria. <clears throat> what you can do is that you can, you can talk. The Afghans love to talk about spiritual things. We, I drove every day to the hospital and back from the hospital 20 minutes each way with my Afghan faculty, family medicine colleagues. And spiritual things come up all the time. And you can talk about them. That's fine. There is a line. You don't confront you don't, you know, debate is, you know, it's, it's pretty much fruitless. Um, but you can talk about these things. If somebody asks you why are you here, you can say it while you're there. That's fine. You can, you can express your love, express Jesus through, through the love in, in caring for residents and, and for, for patients. I think that's probably the best way. Uh, through your behavior, through what you do. That's the best way to witness. So it's not a deal breaker. You, can't, you have to be careful, but don't let that be the reason not to go to Afghanistan. <clears throat> Set up a learning environment. Understand that these residents are about 30 years old. Afghanistan has been through 30 years of oppression and war and, and, and a terrible situation. Many of the residents have had to go to Pakistan as refugees, and they've come back. And Their life is chaotic. Their home life, I had one, you know, it was a funny thing. Early in the, in the residency, I, I found residents volunteering to take night call. Now, how many residents here would, you know, that's an unusual thing. And I, you know, after a while, I began to realize the reason they were volunteering is because in the hospital, first there was heat, and there was food, and there was access to information, and there was and the chaos of their family life was not there. They didn't have to be home working out the difficulties of their home life. So they volunteered to stay in the hospital. I would come in the morning, and I'd find two or three residents there when one was on call. <clears throat> so we give them a salary. We give them good food. Uh, we, in one hospital, we set up daycare um, to help because we want to encourage women to join the program. This white coat, which you know, John Crouch and his team from Image set up this white coat, and it fits. It's nice material. It has their name written across here. It has a, an emblem saying hope in two languages on this side, and they feel good in their white coat. It makes a difference. Give them a stethoscope so they can function on, on rounds. A regular daily schedule that they can count on. This is what you're going to do from 
7.30 is morning report. 7.45 is case conference. 9 o'clock is, is rounds on maternity and pediatrics, and et cetera, all through the day, every day, and they can count on that. And we give them information access. They, wear PD, they have PDAs. They have access to up-to-date. They have 24-hour access to the Internet. <clears throat> stress is good. A little bit of stress is good for learning. Too much stress, the learning goes down. They can't concentrate. If you set up a learning environment and give them some predictability, they begin to learn. It's an amazing process. It takes a couple weeks for them to just settle down and just be on time and sit and listen and learn. It's an amazing process to see it happen. Simple. <clears throat> Tools of medicine. Every third-year medical student understands this is second nature to third year. By the time you're finished with your third year, you understand this. <clears throat> medical record, history and physical, daily rounds, etc. continuity of care, teach and learn. These are what we do. This book by Atul Gawande is worth reading. And in this, he's an Indian-American surgeon in Boston. But he has another foot in India. He, 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 his ancestors are from India. And he goes back and forth, and he reflects on this. And he says about both settings, about the U.S. setting and about the, the situation in India, if you want to get better, it is not by another CT, CT scanner or MRI or... or um, genetic engineering or by a new medication, it is by doing what you do better. These tools of medicine, these are the basics, just do them better and check and manage and measure your performance on these issues, and it works. It works. H&P works. <clears throat> Another process that we did was to establish some values. What's the common ground between Islam and Christianity. This is, this is Jerry Umanos, who worked, he helps set up Lawndale Christian Health Center in the center of, of, of Chicago. He's a pediatrician with us out there. He's been there for many years. Excellent. His worldview is very different from these guys. This fellow is, these are conservative guys. They're wonderful. This, this fellow is, his name is Rahimullah. He's, they call him the Mullah. Um, He's very serious about his faith. And, and their worldviews are very different. But there's some common ground in these, these, these faiths that go back to Abraham. There's common ground. And so, you know, early on we, had, we were starting to have some conflict between Christian worldview and Muslim worldview. And so we sat down and said, hey, what do we have in common? And these are what we, this is what we have in common. And these values... Um, they, they drive what we do every day. And we, put, we hang them on the wall in the hospital and, and make them known to new residents and so on. This is what we believe. And the hospitals have adopted these. So the patient comes first. Respect, regardless of economic status or tribe or man, woman, and so on. Integrity, stewardship, lifelong learning, no problem. No problem. Sanctity of life, no problem for, for the Muslim. <clears throat> these values um, have, been, uh, have been very effective in, in working and helping to work together. Care for the patients. Um, 
um, this is where we can show our love just by modeling good patient care. The Afghans will be rough with patients. Sometimes they'll slap a patient and, and push them and shout at them. And, well, you know, we don't do that. And we, we, we demonstrate by how we care for just our touch and sitting and eye-to-eye contact, these things that are, that are common to us. We just model that, and they pick it up, and things change. And the whole atmosphere, the whole ethos of the hospital changes because of modeling the love of Jesus to patients. High standards of care, you know, and, and M&M, we don't, you don't go there to do a mediocre job. Excellence is, is inherent, is intrinsic to our witness, to our faith. So you, you go there, you, you, you focus and you try, you know, you, you don't achieve the excellence that you have here. But you can get pretty high. You can shoot for it, and you should shoot for it, and, and, and continue to push the standards up and to demand performance and to do well. Just because this is Afghanistan or this is Africa doesn't work. Forget it. Don't use that as an excuse. Strive for excellence. And care for the residents. I, um, you get half credit just to be there, just to show up. You get three-quarters credit if you, if you stay. We had, we had um, one of, an obstetrician named Jackie went out one morning to run. She was running on the mountainside. And she was running with, she was with her husband and, and a couple others. And, and uh, a, a kid up on the, on the mountainside behind a rock began shooting at her, at, at all of them. And so her husband was, you know, he's like a Navy SEAL on the British side. And he, you know, he took care of that situation and threw some stones and got rid of the, and the kid ran and dropped his gun. And it was, saw, it was nobody was hurt. It was resolved. Jackie went home and took a shower and went to work. Now, the, that was not, the Afghans didn't miss that. They thought, wow, this lady gets shot at just like we do. And she shows up at work the same day. That made an impression. Just showing up, just being there side by side with them. They know it's not easy. They know that we're targets. You know, we're American. Goodness. And we show up. And that makes a difference. Gradually, day by day, year by year, the worldview rubs off. Encourage teach critical thinking. The critical thinking is a key part of what we do. And Elliot Larson is here. He's an infectious disease fellow who he and Marty have been here for years, in Afghanistan for years, teaching. And, and they talk with them. This idea of, of critical thinking, it, it opens the door a crack. It opens the mind of the Afghan just a crack to let a little light in and things change. They begin to ask different questions. It's amazing. The, 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 Islam, the Afghan Islamic mind is closed. It's, a, it's just a dark box that's locked and closed. But if you can begin to teach critical thinking, ask questions. I'm not going to bite. Go look it up. Go find it. Let's talk about it tomorrow. You, you, you get that door open a crack. Light comes in and things change. So these are the processes. Note that these processes are not rocket science. We can do this. We can take these processes and and apply them in different settings, different countries around the world. And I encourage you to do that, to get involved, jump in, commit your lives, and do it. Let me me just give some examples of places where you might want to go. 
This is, again, getting back to the concept of failed or failing states. These are the failed or failing states in the world. If it's dark, orange, or red, it's in deep trouble. So note where it is. Note where these, most of the problems are. That's where we need to get involved. Now, what's this? That's the 1040 window. That's where a lot of the trouble is in the world. We need to, that's, we need to get involved there. <clears throat> These are the top 10 failed countries in the world. You don't want to be on this list if you're a country. Seven of those are in the 1040 window. This Arab Spring is an amazing thing that's <coughs> happening. This has been going on since December 18th, less than a year. Three countries, three governments have fallen because of it. These are 16 countries that have, in varied degrees, been seriously affected by this, by this uprising of, of the people, protest against the autocratic governments that they, they've been living under. 16 countries, they're all Islamic, and they're all in the 1040 window. And they're all just a little bit more open now than they were before, I think. This is a huge opportunity for us to be involved. We need to get in there and help. I think, and I don't have evidence, I, don't have, I haven't read this, but, in, but it makes sense to me that part of the reason people are frustrated with their governments, their governments is lack of primary care, lack of health care. That's part of the reason for the frustration. And it's something we can offer. We can go get in and not only provide primary care, but we can teach it. And they will, I think, they will welcome us. <clears throat> so this is the 1040 window. Two-thirds of the world's population lives there. Eight out of ten of the poorest people in the world live there. It's the lowest quality of life in the world. <clears throat> Most of the Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus in the world live there. <clears throat> Most of the unreached people in the world live there. And yet, there's a disconnect. And 10% is a generous number. It's less than 10% of mission resources, people, money, go to the 1040 window. But what's wrong with this situation? There's a disconnect here. And we need to change that. We need, that's where the action is. We need to get involved. <clears throat> One more commercial here. Um, this fellow is needed. He's essential. The, the U.S. Army does a wonderful job in, in Afghanistan. And I, and I, I would not, uh, I, I would, they have to be there. And I, I don't make any argument about that. If, they, if, the, if the forces, if the security forces leave, people say that Mohammed Karzai will be dead in 48 hours. They have to be there for now. But one soldier, in the U one U.S. soldier, costs a million dollars per year. That's the deployment cost. Most of that is in fuel, to pay for fuel. <clears throat> but a million dollars a year, that would, that would support four family medicine programs. It's a lot of money. So this is a dilemma. We're spending all this money on helicopters and so on when we can't get money for family medicine training. That's a, that's a problem. The, the answer to that dilemma is to move upstream, that we need, to move, we need to get involved in countries that are failing, that are in trouble, that don't have primary care, 
before they get to the point where they need military intervention and all of that money and killing and problems that result from that. So we need to move upstream. <clears throat> okay. I'll take some questions. Um, I, uh, you talk about getting involved in failed states. Um, one of the things that I think about sometimes uh, in terms of failed states is like, you know, and certainly, you know, I'll go wherever God calls me. Um, but I wonder about the wisdom of being involved in a failed state in the sense that you could work really hard at building something and forces well beyond your control could, you know, wipe it all out pretty quickly. Um, and, and so I, I guess I just I wonder what you think about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, forces beyond our control could always wipe out our life force, but uh, I feel like it's more of a... I think that's my answer as well, that, that these, these major geographic, geopolitical forces and so on, I, I, they're out, I can't control that. I have to think, well, one, God is in control and has a plan. And two, what if I don't go? You know, what, you know, is there some way I can help? I, I can tell you that that you you get a sense after being there for a while that you really are making a difference in people's lives through the training of young men and women who are so eager to grow in their professions and to learn and to care for their people gradually they will go out and they're going out and they're they're, they're caring for their people and and it makes a difference and I think, you know, this, I think this program should be scaled up for the entire country. And there's a little bit of talk about that um, because it makes a difference. And I, you know, I think that people in this, we have, the United States has the best medical educational system in the world. It's the best. I mean, our health care may not, that's a little bit questionable, but the, but the education that you guys are getting, it's wonderful. We need to share that. Share that wealth of, of how to do things well, how to learn family medicine, and how to apply it. In, in, you mentioned honor shame. In a setting where you're doing M&M, &M mistakes are being made, and residents are in this culture, having Afghanistan are facing uh, mistakes, how, how are you, how, how does that interface happen? And, and, and do, they, do they always respond to, yes, I made a mistake, admitting that, and, or is there a refusal to? That's a key. That, how do you? That's a key question. How do you do M&M &M in this honor shame? I mean, how do you do it? And, and, and again, you model. You say at morning report, you know, I, if I had to do that over again, I would have ordered this medication and not that. I say that. You know, so that there's, so they see me expressing my um, mistake. <clears throat> the, one of the doctors shown here is uh, Dr. Arib. I'll just tell you the story. She came in one morning, and we were doing morning report, and she went, 
and she, you know, she's up, and we have the residents and faculty there, and, and it's just 15 minutes in the morning. What happened last night? So we always start with OB, because that's, that's the worst in Afghanistan. That's the, primary, that's the number one issue of the, of the Ministry of Health and ours as well. And she was breezing through, and what happened to OB? Well, a 26-year-old grabbed a 12-foot paratent, delivered normally at 2 o'clock in the morning, and the baby was fine. And then she said, at, and then at 4 o'clock, a lady came in, and, and the baby was breached, and the cars were 4 and 7, and, and now everything's okay. And then, and I said, Dr. Reed, wait, can you just slow down a little bit and tell me more, tell us more about the baby whose APGARs were 4 and 7? And so she backed up, and she said, well, da, 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 da. did you get an ultrasound? No. Did you call your backup? No. I thought I didn't want to wake him up, and so on and so on. And by, you know, then the residents were raising, you know, they were raising their head. Did you do this? And, did you, you know, and, and, you know, she's starting to get smaller and smaller. But, but, you know, it was not such a big deal, but she understood that, there are standards here, and these standards were written, and this is how you handle a breach, and she should not have done that. She should not have done that herself, and she's fortunate. The baby's okay. Um, she got through it, but it was clear that there were questions. So that day, we had an M&M on this case. Whenever an adverse problem comes up, we, we have an M&M got doctors together, and by then, Dr. Arib came in, and she sat down, and she said, I think I made a mistake. The tension in the room just went out. She said, I think I made a mistake. And so then we could deal with, you know, the educational, then, so, so then the next morning we had, we got the obstetrician in there, we got our models, our pelvis and our babies, and, and the obstetrician, demonstrated how to do a breach and all the men came up and did their maneuvers and the women came up and practiced. You can do 10 breach deliveries in two minutes on those models and it's great. And I thought, well, this is how it should work. And it does work. In the, we've had this, you know, Elliot's been part of this. We've had this happen um, repeatedly that, that, that in our morbidity and mortality review, finally people just come in and say, I think I blew it on this one, right? I wish I would have done this. So it is not, it's counterintuitive in, a, in an honor-shame society, but you can overcome that. And you're fo you have to keep focus on the patient, number one. Focus on excellence. Focus on personal responsibility. Focus on, 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 on collegial. This is, it's not a punitive process. M&M isn't punitive. It is, it's teamwork. It's let's move along and get, and get, and get better. So that next time, we won't do a breach delivery in the middle of the night without backup, without the ultrasound. <clears throat> and, and fatalism, that Another, another key question, inshallah. You know, inshallah the patient will survive or maybe not. You know, it's up to Allah. And, and so that can be an excuse for just pulling off, for not doing your best. You know, that for stepping back and, and going home early and so on. And, and we say, 
it, it is. All of this is in God's control. But we are, we have the skills. We need, we are gifted. We are responsible. We're on, we're on the firing line right now for this patient. What can we do? What can we do with the gifts and powers and, 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 and equipment and facility and so on that we have? So, you know, I, when I hear inshallah, I, I think, whoa, let's talk about this. You know, this is not a this is not a bailout. We can't. We've got to take care of these folks. And Elliot, do you have any? You want to say anything more about that? Well, I, you know, success can be its own reward when they start to see patients flow through who they never would have expected any positive result. That's a very powerful reinforcement for what you're saying. Yeah. And I was also going to say, you know, there's a proverb that says, "Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises." Yeah, we select residents based on, um, we have them apply. They take a test in English. All the training is in English. They take a 50-question multiple-choice uh, exam in English. We, we shortlist based on that. We interview about 20 and take five or six. And we get good ones. We get the best. We have affirmative action toward women. The women haven't had as much chance to excel as the men, so we accept those with lesser scores, with lower scores. But my money is on the women. We have five in training now, and they are excellent. They're more mature. They have children. They have husbands to take, take care of. They, they, at the end of the day, they, the, when they're leaving the hospital, they say, now my work day begins. My money's on the women, and, and they are wonderful, wonderful people. The men are okay. <laughs> 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 I do, and PAs. We had a wonderful PA, Gina um, uh, Brown, who worked in in a, in a little clinic, and she did maternal and, and health and GYN, and she taught, and she had midwives next to her the whole time. Wonderful. She spoke Pashto, and she uh, she did a wonderful job. And and uh, you know the the government wouldn't recognize PA. You know, they, but but in Afghanistan, and I think this is true in these other in other countries, they, they don't require a licensing. They don't have a licensing process yet. So they say to us, I'm in charge of the hospital, so they say, you make sure that your doctors are qualified. And whoever's providing care, that's your responsibility. We put that on you. And if you have any, if the problems come up, we're going to come to you. So we take care of that. And so we could accept PAs and nurse practitioners. John? Can you explain why you Teaching in English is why do we teach in English? It's the universal language of, of medicine. It, the, um, the, uh, it gives the Afghans and they like they know they know English. The bright ones know English anyway. They're eager to learn English and computers are what they want to learn. And uh, Marty teaches English, and and uh, so it gives them access to the international medical database. They have it on their hip all through the day, as residents here do. <clears throat> the other reason is that short-term doctors. Um, who come and get off the plane, I think it's over. 
this lecture is over. <laughs> the short-term doctors from the U.S. can get off the plane, walk into a lecture room, and begin to teach. So we can. So that makes it easier. English makes it easier for that. I think actually it is. Uh, it is nine uh, nine ten. And I'm happy to answer questions afterwards.